Holy flowers floating in the air were all these tired faces in the dawn of jazz America. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. And that was Jack Kerouac in a very rare recording held in the collection of the British Library Sound Archive. We're going to hear more about it later uh, because this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture is dedicated to the Beats, William Burroughs in particular, and Friends. And it's curated, collected, and played out for us by Steve Cleary from the British Library Sound Archive. Steve is the lead curator of drama and literature recordings. He's been there since 2003. And we're also going to hear a recording we did a couple of years ago with Barry Miles, the Capitals Chronicle of the Counterculture, again about William Burroughs and his time in London, along with some rare and wonderful recordings. The British Library Sound Archive is one of the biggest collections in the world of recordings. There are 1 million discs, 185,000 tapes, and many other sound and video recordings from all over the world. Uh, and Steve is going to play us just a few of them today, some in particular from a collection that he is himself very interested in, the counterculture collection, I suppose you could call it. And Steve has worked for the British Library since 1994, but I'm not going to tell you any more about him. He can tell you about him himself. Welcome, Steve. Hello, Stephen. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Steve, where did it all begin? Well, I started at the British Library uh, over 25 years ago as a temporary library assistant, in fact. Um, so I was looking for a job and uh, I was quite attracted to the British Library because in those days, pre-internet, uh, once a book was out of print, I mean, I've always been a, a reader, um, it could be hard to track down. Nowadays, it's quite easy, and it's just a question of whether you can afford such and such an item or not. And uh, the fact that the British Library was said to house every book in the world, or in, in fact, uh, every book published in the UK, or well, that's their aim, uh, one of their aims, was the... Um, was the attraction really? Is that true? I mean, is that is that so? That's the aim. And I mean, how many books does that involve? Then every book that's been published in the UK. I don't know the figures, but um, there is a Legal Deposit Act. So if you publish a book, even if you make it in your in a shed in your back garden, and there's only six copies, you are legally obliged to deposit. Well, actually, six copies would need to be more than six copies because there's six legal deposit libraries, so you wouldn't be left with anything else. But uh, <laughs> if, you've got, if you've got probably seven, you've actually got to stick them all, six of them yeah. in. in. Uh, a short limited edition. And the British Library are obliged to take them, are they, and put them somewhere? Um, I don't know if they're obliged. I mean, they welcome them. It's not really ever been a problem, I don't think. Um, but there's no there's no corresponding uh, legal obligation uh, regarding sound recording. Well, I mean, let's let's dig into that. I mean, so for you, 1994 is quite a long time ago now, Steve. I have to tell you. 
So you started off in books and moved into sound. I mean, how did that happen? Um, I got a job as an assistant to the curator of uh, drama and literature recordings. And that was kind of my apprenticeship. I mean, at the time I first worked at the sound archive, it was a separate building in, in South Kensington. It was still part of the British Library. And in something around 1997, I think, we moved into the big building, the, the, new, the then new building uh, on the Euston Road. I've dug around in your amazing basement. Yeah, a lot of the material is in the basement. Some's in our facility in Yorkshire. Uh, the offices and other facilities are kind of dotted around. Um, but there was a trade-off. I mean, it's positive uh, on balance because we've got much better technical facilities, which we didn't really have properly in the old building. Um, and we're much more integrated with things like exhibitions that the British Library do and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, speaking of that, I mean, you have in those years and in recent years curated quite a few exhibitions. I mean, you did 140 years of recorded sound in 2017, 2018. We had a little piece in that. I was very pleased to do. Punk, 1976, 78. That was the dates of Punk, not of your exhibition. That was uh, in 2016. That toured a bit as well, didn't it, that one? That was a very popular show, wasn't it? I saw it in Liverpool, I think. Uh, the punk rock exhibition, mm. the version in Liverpool, was quite different. Um, we worked with, again, with uh, our co-curator, Sir Colin Fallows, from Liverpool John Moores University. And uh, it was augmented with a lot of material relating to Eric's Club that came from right. the LJMU archives. And the LJMU archives are pretty interesting. Um, Colin has, for uh, about 20 years, been strategically building up a sort of punk and counterculture archive, and that contains um, uh, John Savage's England's Dreaming archive, which we drew on quite a lot for the punk rock exhibition at the British Library. Um, an International Times archive, Barry Miles. Um, stuff about the Oz obscenity trial. Um, we All these things kind of complement each other. I mean, at the, in the British Library Sound Archive, we have tapes audio tapes of the Oz Obscenity trial. The thing is, is that if there are over a million discs, over 185,000 tapes and all that other stuff, drama and literature recordings, oral history, English accents and dialects, classical pop world, traditional music recordings, wildlife and environmental stuff, it's a huge amount of stuff, isn't it? And I mean, one of the, you, drama and literature is your department, but also you have kind of uh, focused on countercultural stuff as well, haven't you? Sound recording was invented in 1877, but pre-World War II, there aren't that many recordings of famous writers. There are no recordings of Thomas Hardy, for example, who lived uh, into the age of sound recording. So a lot of it comes from the 50s and onward. Um, the spoken word industry on vinyl was basically kicked off by Cadman Records in New York in around about the mid-50s, early to mid-50s with Dylan Thomas. Um, so the, the beat writers and people like that um, were kind of around at the right time, if you think about the technology. So uh, there are no recordings of Percy Shelley, um, but there are many, many recordings of Allen Ginsberg. Right. Um, I mean, he may be one of the most recorded poets of all time, but that's simply because he kind of lived at the right... Well, it's not Coincided simple. with the technology actually being sort of becoming yeah, yeah. readily available. Yeah, <clears throat> and, in, and in Ginsberg's case, obviously, he was a performer, you know, a regular performer of his work as well. Well, um, Steve, why don't we just dive in and I'm just going to play your first uh, selection and then we can talk about it. He doesn't care about flavour. Watch it. He spotted us. He's getting away. Hop into my custom-built grocery cart. 
this button releases a smoke screen out the back. The name is Clem Snide. I am a private eye. I will take any identity, anybody. I will do anything difficult, dangerous, art, downright dirty for a price. Me from the grocery cart and knocking down gold noodle at the checkout counter. We at Prince Macaroni have an expression for that. What is it? We call it using the old noodle. I was afraid that was it. Three dozen eggs when you buy Prince Egg noodles. Get details at your... Now, try this. Take a walk, a bus, a taxi. Do a few jerry errands in these foreign suburbs here. And who do you think was the first agent on the golf course? Smell hell? Quite by chance, the same stranger here? Outside agent call. Soft as a raindrop, fresh as the sea. Bought paragoric, audible click, wall there, excrement. Recall you have ten minutes here. See this hand calling time? You now have eight minutes. telescope keep it keep it steady to focus date of death on the road to Spain Residencia Madrid number 23 Calle de los Desamparados Poetos de los Santos from a triple album set called Real English Tea Made Here, issued by the label Audio Research Editions, Colin Fowler's label, collected from some of Barry Miles' recordings in the Sound Archive. Steve, tell us about them. It was a distillation of a batch of um, tapes that run to around 12 hours. Uh, The original tapes are now in the British Library Sound Archive, uh, the ones that Colin and Miles selected, um, like that th- piece we just heard, or that excerpt we just heard, exemplify um, how Burroughs um, applied the cut-up technique that he used in prose to audio recording, in a way. So, uh, as, as your listeners probably know, the cut-up technique was um, discovered, stroke-invented by Burroughs' his friend, the painter Brian Geisen, when he cut through some newspapers when he was making a mount in his studio, and they rearranged the text to form new um, new sentences with new meanings in a kind of Dadaist way. I mean, it wasn't 100% brand new. Uh, and Burrow, Burroughs took this idea and ran with it and used it uh, in, in many of his uh, novels and other works. That for him was a kind of creative technique, was it, which spread into his other visual and audio work then? 
Yeah, they used uh, uh, two or three different techniques. One was called inching, I believe, when they would um, sort of move the tape along. And then, uh, I mean, essentially it was recording things from different sources at random and uh, juxtaposing them with each other. And uh, it's, I mean, it's quite raw, but sort of interesting. I think when you hear Burroughs' voice, that adds uh, definitely a kind of edge, a sinister edge and often a hum blackly humorous edge. Um, he recorded that in London, did he? Possibly. Um, if we look at the 12 hours of tapes uh, in their entirety, they're quite varied. There are recordings he made when he lived in London uh, of flat in uh, Duke Street, St. James, uh, near Piccadilly Circus. Uh, some of these, um, I don't know if you say they have research value so much as kind of curiosity value. He's obviously left the tape recorder running um, while he's just talking to people in his flat. Uh, some of it's quite incongruous. You can hear the um, 1972 Benson and Hedges Gold Cup on the, on the TV at one point, which you don't really associate with Burroughs. Uh, one of his uh, friends is playing pop records like Sure, for example, and things like this. Um, and there's other interviews and uh, and so forth. So there's a lot to explore, and uh, those recordings are, are unique. Well, here is an interview that I did with Miles, Barry Miles, uh, back in 2018 with my collaborator Paul Hartfield. And there's a saying, um, if you can remember the 60s, you couldn't have been there. But there's another saying, which is that if you can't remember the 60s, that's fine, because Miles wrote it all down. He is uh, quite a countercultural character. Uh, I mean, known for his participation and writing on the London Underground and Counterculture, author of numerous books on the beats, including the biographies of Ginsburg, Kerouac, Bukowski, and of course, Burroughs. Uh, he wrote El Hombre Invisible and William S. Burroughs Alive. Um, he's written a book on the Beat Hotel where Burroughs lived. He's catalogued Burroughs Archive, compiled his bibliography. He's written all sorts of other countercultural books, I think at 70 at last count, including biographies of Frank Zappa, Paul McCartney, uh, Ginsberg, many of the luminaries of the Beat scene. He also co-founded the Indiki Gallery, where John Lennon met Yoko Ono, and International Times. And here he is talking about Burroughs' life in London. Miles, um, what brought Burroughs to London? Uh, he came to London because uh, he, was, he had an affair with this guy Ian Somerville, who was um, a mathematician who was still at, uh, studying at Cambridge. And so uh, at the end of the summer, Ian came back to London and uh, Bill simply followed him. And for the first few years, they stayed in various hotels, in, mainly in um, Earl's Court. And then in... 67, I think it was, uh, he rented a place on uh, Duke Street St. James and um, lived there until 74, so he was there for quite a long time. And Fortnum and Mason's was his corner shop, and uh, where he'd go and get his milk and his, um, his sal salted crackers that he had for lunch. He said, I enjoy a salted cracker. <laughs> and then he ate out every single evening. I mean, he was, he's from that kind of generation who never cooked for themselves. You know? So he was living the sort of proper you know, St. James's Gentleman's Club sort of life, you know. Uh, you know, he used to have boys, boyfriends from Piccadilly, Dilly boys, and, uh, and you know, lived the proper life of a gentleman. How did you first hear about him? Through the books. And then I met people who had actually met him, you know, that he actually was in, you know, living at the Beat Hotel in Paris. And then these were people, uh, when I went to art college, who, who 
you know, actually went to Paris. I mean, astonishing to me, you know. And and I'd met him and stayed in the hotel, which was very, very cheap and rat infested. Um, and then Naked Lunch appeared. Uh, it was published in 1959, and I got a copy probably within six months of it being published. And it just blew me away. I just thought, this really tells it like it is, you know. And I'd been, you know, for English O-levels, you know, it was sort of Siegfried Sassoon and all these kind of things is what we were reading in Dickens, you know. And I'd never, I had no idea people could write like this. It was brilliant. <laughs> but how did you actually get, you know, come to be in contact with him? Well, somehow, somehow or other, I got, hold of Burroughs' address in Tangier. He was, he, that's where he was living at the time. And um, so I was bringing out a little magazine and um, I thought it would be nice to publish something of his. So I literally just wrote to him in, this would have been in the summer of 1964. And I got back this big letter and a, a three or four page manuscript. And it was absolutely brilliant. And so we had a correspondence, I mean, about really obscure stuff. I mean, he, he was into uh, Wilhelm Reich's uh, organ accumulators at the time, and uh, we had a conversation, uh, a correspondence about whether or not magnetized ones would work better. And stuff <laughs> kind <of> stuff. <laughs> when did you first meet? Then when he, he came to Britain in, at the end of 65, September 65, I think. And by then I, I already knew Ian Somerville, oddly enough, who was his boyfriend. And... Um, and in fact, Ian eventually had a room in a, in a house I was renting in Westminster. So, um, so I, I started. I basically, I moved into his sort of social circle, and first met him in '65. And then, then I did a lot of work with him over the years. Uh, when I started International Times with Hoppy, uh, we got Burroughs to write for the second issue, the third, the fifth, you know, the eighteenth. I mean, he was in. You know, if Bill had something to say, he, you know, he would just give it to us and we would run it. And then the Underground Press Syndicate would syndicate it all over the world. And uh, he loved that, the fact that stuff could be out so, so quickly. So who else was in his social circle? Uh, the other person he, he was hanging out with was Brian Geisen, who was an old friend and collaborator of his. And uh, they worked on the cut-ups together. And in, in the end, in fact, uh, Brian moved over into the same building. So Anthony and Brian and, um, and Bill lived in, in 22 Duke Street St. James. And also did, so did Eric Burden from The Animals. And so it was, um, it's not a very big building, so it was a bit of a sort of cool building to, to, to be in. And, uh, um, and then he knew a lot of the Chelsea set. He knew Christopher Gibbs and he knew the, uh, Robert Fraser, the art dealer. He, he was quite friendly with Robert and spent a lot of time at his place. Um, he moved in mainly gay circles, actually, uh, but he also, uh, he, since he ate in Soho almost every evening, uh, he got to know the people at the Colony Room pretty well and, uh, and the French pub. So he knew um, Francis Bacon, although he, he actually first met Bacon in Tangier, but um, I used to go with him occasionally to, to meet Francis, in the, mainly in the Colony, which is where Francis Bacon hung out most of the time. So it was, um, it was interesting, sort of... A mixture of sort of, um, you know, gay people, gangsters, artists. Um, Junkies? I don't think he was on junk most of the time he was in Britain, so he didn't really mix with a sort of junky set. I mean, not that there was much. I mean, apparently uh, by the end of the 60s, there were only 200 registered addicts in the entire country. In fact, Burroughs um, had a doctor who also wrote him a script for marijuana, which uh, was a much more complicated thing. It was... <laughs> he would go to the doctor and he would say, I'm, I'm really feeling very, very paranoid um, about being busted because I smoke marijuana. So this is a cure for paranoia. So he would sign, 
give him a script for uh, tincture of cannabis, which comes in a, a liquid suspension of, uh, of alcohol. And it's, dyed, it's bright green. And Bill used to dip his senior service cigarettes into it. And, uh, you know, and he would light up in restaurants and he was convinced nobody had noticed. But he's smoking this bright green cigarette, which like, really smelled very strong indeed. You know? <laughs> but he looked so straight you know, in his suit and everything. And, you know, that, you know, no one ever did anything about it. <laughs> well, what was his relationship with London, you know, with the actual Everywhere city? Burroughs lived, he never really noticed the city at all. I mean, he, as far as I know, he never went to an art gallery or, or a film or anything. I mean, his, his life was cerebral. It was all, all in his head. You know, his characters came to him, half of them in dreams. Um, he, liked, he liked the sort of popular press, you know. Um, he would get, you know, funny clippings and stuff and use them in collages and... Um, he liked, um, later on in the early 70s, uh, he had a great big colour television, which he, he had turned right up so that the red was, was really strong. And he particularly liked the riots in Belfast and stuff like that. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, he, but he could have been anywhere, you know. And he, when he was in Paris, he loved it, and then eventually he hated it. And he moved to London and he loved it, and then eventually he hated it. New York, same thing. Tangier, same thing. Did he do a lot of work here? Yeah, yeah. When he was living in London, he produced uh, The Wild Boys, um, The Exterminator, uh, The Ticket That Exploded. No, no. Well, some of The Ticket That Exploded was written here. Um, yeah, he, he, he produced a lot. And he did a lot of uh, collages and uh, scrapbooks where he combined text and images. And uh, he worked on the, a lot of films with Anthony Bolsch, Towers Open Fire, Cut Ups, were, were both made in London. And um, and he did a lot of tape collages as well, uh, you know, cut up tapes where he would record a, a text and then rewind, and go through it and just punch in and read it from newspaper clippings and things like that. Often themed, there would be something like uh, he'd have a big folder of news clippings about um, bus plunges, for instance, you know, <laughs> or... Um, you know, or the number 23, 23 dead in air crash, you know, 23 dead in a riot and stuff. And uh, he had all these things he would read out from in this gravelly voice, you know. <laughs> and uh, they, were, they were really, um, I liked them a bit. A lot of people find them very difficult listening. Some years ago, I produced a three volume, a three CD box set of them, uh, which uh, I have to say can clear a room pretty fast, actually. <laughs> but I, yeah, I quite enjoyed them. <laughs> Very good. So um, when did he actually leave or what did he do next? So he finally moved back to the States after he left in 1947 uh, or 48, I think, and went back in 74. So he produced almost all of his work uh, while living abroad in, in Mexico or South America or Tangier or Paris and, or London. So um, uh, he basically went home. And then after New York, he went to, to back to the Midwest not to not to um, Missouri, where he came from, but to Kansas, which is the next state, and lived quietly with his cats, like an old man should. So that was Miles a couple of years ago. Um, Miles also told us about the famous time-space intervention that Mer Burroughs made in um, 1972, I think in August, uh, at the Mocha Cafe, just around the corner from here. He claimed that they'd given him food poisoning um, by serving him some dodgy strawberry cheesecake. So he performed a time-space intervention on them uh, shortly afterwards, which is that he went in there with his tape recorder 
recorded the sound in the cafe and took some Polaroids and then went in the next day, spread the Polaroids out on the table and played the previous day's soundtrack back quite loudly in the cafe as a kind of uh, time-space intervention. And it closed down shortly afterwards, so he (laughs) claimed it as a successful... uh, uh, a successful time-space intervention. I think I can't. I can't help thinking that twelve hours of that stuff must get quite, quite exhausting. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? And of course, because he's interesting and part of his whole history. But um, I wouldn't have wanted to be the person I had to sit through twelve hours of that, selecting the bits that are going to go on the on the CD. It's, it's probably better in small doses, depending on your appetite. Actually, since you mentioned. Uh, Eating out around Piccadilly Circus, also on these tapes, is uh, discussing at one one point whether or not to go out to the Angus Steakhouse, which is uh, quite prosaic, really. Uh, it's quite interesting then in terms of actually how the Sound Archive, you know, gains its recordings. I mean, so you presumably people are getting contacts and say, "We've got this. Are you interested?" Sometimes presumably that they want cash for it. Sometimes that they're prepared to make it as a donation. Is that the way it works? Or do you ever find yourself kind of competing or bidding, as it were, because something's of such importance? The recordings we have come from a number of different sources. So one would be uh, commercial recordings um, featuring writers or performances, uh, non-musical performances, um, as far as I'm concerned, in, in my area. So we try to keep up with those. Um, often the, these include kind of artist records and, and so forth that don't really fit in anywhere else. Um, unpublished recordings would be another category. So um, this often happens after somebody dies, but not always. And um, they may be donated or somebody may require a fee. I mean, a lot of alternative theatre performers, for example, probably don't have a great provision for their supporting their old age. You know, maybe they've not got great pension plans or anything like that. So it's quite legitimate for people to ask for a bit of money. Um, um, we have a relationship with BBC Radio, um, which not everybody knows about. So if you want to hear anything that's been archived by BBC Radio, you can come to the British Library and if we don't have it already, we can borrow it. And then the fourth category, which... Um, it brings us up to our next selection, really, is that we make location recordings ourselves and have done historically over the years, live theatre performances, uh, a lot of poetry. And uh, this is just kind of our one of our USPs, really, because these are all unique recordings that you can't hear anywhere else. They won't be online or on YouTube or anything like that. Let's have a listen to that second selection. Can you all hear me? Yes. No? Yes. All right. This is the uh, from the forewords, the place of dead roads, a novel I have just completed. The original title of this book was the Johnson family. Now, the Johnson family was the turn of the century expression to designate good bums and thieves, and it was elaborated into a code of conduct. A Johnson honors his obligations. His word is good, and he's a good man to do business with. A Johnson minds his own business. He is not a snoopy, self-righteous, troublemaking person. A Johnson will give help when help is needed. He will not stand by while someone is drowning, calling for help, or trapped under a car. Uh, Nothing extraordinary, just a reasonably well-intentioned person. I recollect Brian Geisen, Eon Somerville, and your reporter sitting at a table in Tangiers having an espresso, and a man walked by. Nothing special to look at, 
Spanish, middle-aged, obviously poor, shabbily dressed, carrying one of those nameless parcels wrapped in brown paper. Nothing special, no halo, but our mouths dropped open in unison. My God, that's a harmless-looking person. <laughs> he passed. I never saw him again, but I got the message. That man was a Johnson. <laughs> he shone with a holy light in contrast to those of another persuasion who seemed to dominate and populate the planet, rushing along to the police station to lodge a complaint or inform on someone writing letters demanding the return of flogging and capital punishment, urging castration for rioters, leaving little squirrels and squiggles of hate and fear and malevolence in the air behind them, literally kept alive by the hope of doing some harm to somebody. And then the vision of a man, just a reasonably well-intentioned person. Very extraordinary and rare indeed in these times. Well, you just heard um, a short excerpt from uh, a recording that uh, in its entirety runs 42 minutes. Uh, this was made by the British Library. Somebody had the bright idea to go to the Centre Hotel Liverpool on the 5th of October 1982 and make a live recording of the, the whole evening. From that, you can, if you aren't already aware of what Burroughs is like in performance. You can see how the humour is brought out in his uh, delivery. Um, maybe that doesn't leap out at you so much on the printed page. Um, but he rehearsed properly for these readings. Uh, it was a proper performance because, I mean, it's got the uh, it's got the characteristics of, of sort of being rather off the cuff in his distinctive manner, but actually it was all re quite rehearsed, was it? So this was part of a, a, a tour called The Final Academy, um, partly organised by Roger Ely. And uh, there was a show in London, um, in Brixton, and uh, there was this one in Liverpool, which I think was probably arranged at quite short notice. And um, the day before that, there had been one at the Hacienda nightclub in Manchester, the uh, factory records owned nightclub. Uh, this was before the Acid House era, when uh, I think the Hacienda was struggling to find its feet really mainly featured bands but wasn't by any means full all the time and uh, i was at college in manchester at the time and i, I did go to the manchester show to see burrows he, even then he was quite old wasn't he i guess he must have been in his 70s or something was he i guess he was, being, he was born in 1914 so in 1982 that makes him what stephen 68 <laughs> <laughs> let's go with that <laughs> Right, so okay, so you went along. You, you, so young Steve Cleary uh, went along um, to the Hacienda to see Bill Burroughs, right? Yeah, and uh, our party had bought tickets in advance to be on the safe side. I remember we had to walk past uh, Marky Smith of the Fall, who was standing in the queue. Well, it makes complete sense in terms of uh, the Fall's lyrics, right? When you hear that stuff and that kind of acerbic delivery. Who else was there? Can you remember? Uh, I can remember who was on the bill. Um, Burroughs was supported by um, uh, the poet John Giorno. And uh, there's also an involvement here with uh, on the part of Genesis P. Origin Psychic TV. So I believe there were some Psychic TV films shown as part of the evening as well. Um, 
Burroughs did a signing afterwards. Uh, a mate of mine got his signature on a scrap of paper. Did he feel did that feel at the time that he was sort of in the presence of a legend? Because I mean, he he was becoming quite legendary then, even though he remained quite accessible, right? That was part of it. But, um, I did enjoy Burroughs' work, so I wasn't just just going along to see a a famous person. Somebody had the idea to go and record him, which obviously, in retrospect, turned out to be quite an inspired idea because you collected that as an original recording. And um, does that still go on? So the library, Sun Archive still kind of like selects events which they think um, we've got to get catch this for posterity and make sure that we send someone along to with a, with a digital tape recorder these days and catch it all? We still have a location recording programme for spoken word. Also, the World of Traditional Music Department has, has gone to the WOMAD Festival for 30-plus years. Uh, that ha- that's been happening. Um, it's a little bit different because I think uh, in the 1980s, in this period, the curators for, for the spoken word area probably had the freedom to go off around the country in a van and uh, make recordings at different places. So there are recordings of the Cambridge Poetry Festival, um, recordings from Edinburgh, I mean, all, all sorts of things. Um, but it was, a, it was a lot less London-centric uh, then than it is now. Of course, a lot of people pass through London, so ultimately it probably doesn't make a lot of difference. Um, but we can't really uh, afford to um, go off on the road for you know, days on end anymore. But we do record um, regularly poetry events. We have a a link up with the Poet in the City organisation, for example, Uh, literary talks. We have a a long, we've had a long relationship with the Royal Society of Literature. You mentioned poetry then, uh, Steve, and you mentioned John Giorno, who was at the Hacienda show with Burroughs. And this is one of his poems. It's called Raspberry. Bob Freed was 25 years old, barely 5 feet 8 inches tall, and and weighed no more than 135 pounds. His light brown hair was uncombed, and the pupils of his blue eyes were pinned and stripped from a shot of heroin he pumped into himself. He wore dirty black dungarees and a dirty shirt. And then one day, early this year, at the age of 19, publishing family. She came from the or like a beneficiary of a trust fund that gave him an allowance of $27,000 a year. Bob Freed was 25 years and old, two years with barely 5 feet 8 inches tall, she turned on, and weighed no she more than 135 pounds. And His light brown hair was uncombed, and the pupils of his blue eyes were pinned, constricted from a shot of heroin he pumped into himself. He wore dirty black dungarees and a dirty shirt. Did not look at all like a graduate of Dartmouth College or a from a of rich and philanthropic publishing family. And for two years with or like a beneficiary of a trust fund that gave him an allowance of $27,000 a year. And Bob Freed was 25 years old, barely 5 feet 8 inches tall, and weighed no more than 135 pounds. His light brown hair was uncombed and the pupils of his blue eyes were pinned and restricted from a shot of heroin he pumped into himself. He wore dirty black dungarees and, and a dirty shirt. Did not look at all like she a graduate of Dartmouth College or a rich and, and philanthropic publishing and family. Heroin. Or and like a beneficiary of a trust fund that gave him an allowance of $27,000 a year. That is an amazing recording and sort of slightly mind-bending, right, as well. It's like some sort of uh, stereophonic thing going on. Tell us about it. That was an excerpt from an LP that in December 1967 in an edition of A Thousand Copies. 
and it was called uh, The Intravenous Mind Presents Poems by John Giorno. And on one side it had uh, raspberry, and a part of that we just heard. And on the other side it had something called pornographic poem. The female voice was Yvonne Rayner, and the male voice I think was Robert Rauschenberg, but it might have been uh, Peter Shaldahl, who was also credited. And Giorno is interesting from our point of view because um, from quite an early point he was interested in using recording technology as part of performances uh, of poetry. Uh, he did kind of uh, live performances um, with synthesizers and, and, and so forth as well. For this, the pornographic poem um, was uh, a found text. He asked visitors to his flat to read and he recorded uh, all these different people reading this found text and kind of layered it, as you, as you say, for that side. It's a bit strong, so for this, um, I thought... Um, in case there's librarians or others of a nervous disposition listening, um, perhaps we'll go with something from, from the other side, which is called Raspberry. But also you could hear it's kind of electronically treated and, and layered. Uh, after that, uh, Giorno invented the uh, dial a poem service. And this was um, the first time anybody had done anything like this, I think. He managed to get hold of 10 large metal answering machines. Uh, so he's using very primitive and quite bulky technology. Uh, recorded different poems on these 10 machines and it published a number and you could ring the number and you would get one of the 10 poems of the day at random. He changed them every day. Uh, it was extremely popular, often engaged, uh, something like 14,000 calls a day. This is, it, this is all in New York, of course. Uh, so he's quite an innovator. Uh, later on in the 1980s, um, they Might Be Giants, the music duo, started something called Dial a Song on a, a similar principle, but that was uh, just for just one caller at a time, at least initially. That's still going, actually. Wow. So uh, that's something that, if you wanted to do it now, probably would be quite easy, um, but then wasn't easy. It was a real, real effort. And that led to a record label, uh, Giorno Poetry Systems. Actually, that first LP was probably the first Giorno Poetry Systems record. Giorno Poetry Systems issued a number of uh, spoken word LPs that include various poets, including Ginsberg and Burroughs, uh, musicians, Laurie Anderson. And it was a kind of reflection of the New York art and literature scene, really. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the um, I guess at that time, you know, the very first piece we played, Burroughs, you know, with his reel-to-reel tape recorder and uh, doing sort of cuts and jumps, edits and stuff. And then, <clears throat> you know, using those kind of layered effects. And then that dialogue poem thing. It was a sort of time, wasn't it, when you've got kind of the, the cut-up ethos and the kind of experimental ethos of using words in new ways, non-linear ways, coinciding with recording technology, which meant that... Or recording technology, which... Or individuals could use and which was portable enough to kind of move around and experiment with so it was it was those two things kind of collided at that time didn't they and produced what you know which produced some completely original at the time work which now in the age of the kind of computers and technology that we've got you say well that'd be easy to do but of course then they were innovators right well not everybody had access to the technology um i think burrows and geisen were quite quick off the mark um we, we didn't really have tape recording technology at all until after World War II. And the technology came from Nazi Germany. Um, and uh, these machines were fairly expensive, so they, it wouldn't be 
a case of every home has one or anything like that. They responded to the technology that was relatively new at the time, creatively, uh, as did Samuel Beckett, of course, with his play Crap's Last Tape, which is based on somebody listening to tapes he's made in the past, the, the, the lead character. If you go and see this short play nowadays, you have to kind of try and imagine what it was like when it, when it was first performed, when this technology was basically new. There's also something about the quality of it which is not reproducible now, partly because of the technology and the, and the kind of simplicity of it compared with what we've got now in terms of edits and stuff, is that it's got a different kind of uh, feel to it. Um, I had Alan Dean um, in t- for a for a, we've done a, he's done a couple of programs and I don't know if you know Alan actually he's a uh, you know yeah, or, he's helped us out a lot, yeah. yeah an oral historian but also you know he's he's very interested in that whole area of uh, recording onto you know amateur recording onto disc which overlaps with what we've done in in terms of the Soviet recordings and you know he makes this point which I th- just think is r- very important in terms of as you said post-war era when people either did have access to tape or those you know, machines that you could put uh, a shilling in and get a record out, is that it was the first time for many people that they'd actually heard their own voice. And that in itself was something quite magical. Um, I mean, we all know, we all wince a bit when we first hear our voice recorded. We're not used to it, hearing it that way. Uh, but at that time, people just didn't get chance. There weren't answer machines. And um, we've fairly recently, I think about a year ago, two years ago, acquired uh, one of these voice records ourselves that was made by a uh, a soldier, uh, Adrian Montfort, serving in a foreign country. And uh, he sounds fairly, fairly relaxed. But, um, some, of them, some of the examples do sound rather stilted. I was watching this uh, documentary about Ernest Hemingway on the, the, the BBC recently and um, was flabbergasted to find, that, um, find out that he was terrified of public speaking, um, certainly being recorded. So he did agree to um, be uh, recorded for TV, giving a, a speech of thanks for his Nobel Prize award. But insisted on the words being written out on large cue cards. And when you see this piece of film, he's looking at the cue cards, he's, then he's looking back to the camera, and he's reading out what, a sentence, then he's looking back to the cue card. And you can hardly, uh, you know, you can hardly credit it, this man who was, you know, Fearless in certain situations. Fearless and macho and a kind yeah, of a real yeah, man and you yeah, know, yeah, hunting, yeah, shooting, yeah, fishing yeah. and stuff. I mean, I love it, Ernest anyway, but uh, <laughs> it was a surprise. <laughs> so um, uh, just to cycle back a second to that John Giona poem that was performed there, tell us a little bit about John Giona then. Well, John Giona was a, a poet. He seemed to kind of know a lot of people that mattered on the New York art scene. He was uh, Andy Warhol's boyfriend for a while. He was the subject of Warhol's famous film Sleep, which is just a film of somebody sleeping. John Giorno, in fact, sleeping. Um, And I know that um, he lived in the same building as Burroughs uh, when Burroughs lived in New York in the 80s. Um, But John Giorno's poetry was... um, uh, He was gay and he was very upfront about this. I've got a quote here from his book, actually, I'd like to read. So he's talking about um, how certain artists, he mentions Andy Warhol, Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns, in his opinion, tended to shy away from uh, gay content in their their work, um, possibly fearing that it would have an adverse effect on their careers. Um, 
He says, uh, they mostly came from poor families and I was from the upper middle class, which gave me the privilege to do what I wanted. And poets have nothing to lose anyway. William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg liberate and sorry, let me, let me say that again. William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg's liberating use of gay images had inspired me in the 1950s. It became my determination and heroic aspiration to take homoeroticism to another level in my work. Perhaps I did it a little too much. You mentioned Ginsberg, then it's and you've got a you've got a. Uh, a recording by him here. I mean, you said earlier that he's probably one of the most recorded poets, certainly of that era. So ahead of this one, which is Ginsburg at Better Books, an excerpt from a mantra. Just tell us about it, Steve. Better Books was um, a countercultural hotspot on Charing Cross Road, um, managed at different times by um, Miles, who we've mentioned before, and Bob Cobbing, the sound poet. And um, I wanted to play a little bit from this LP, Allen Ginsberg at Better Books, because for a long time, a good copy of this was on my kind of wish list. Um, we did have a copy in the sound archive, but it was a bit battered. And uh, we eventually acquired a pristine copy from Miles, which is great. Uh, Miles actually recorded the uh, the poetry reading that's on the record on a ferrograph machine himself. Um, so this is from 1965. A little bit of atmosphere, really. This, this is part of a mantra that Allen Ginsberg um, recited at that uh, sold-out reading. <laughs> That's Alan Ginsberg's mantra. Um, it's interesting to, I know that uh, we keep talking about Miles, and of course he is, you know, at the centre of many of these um, stories and recordings. And uh, I like his story, tell me that, because Ginsberg used to stay in his flat in Fitzroy where Master lives. And uh, he, I remember he telling me that he came out one morning and he could just see Ginsberg's butt um, up in the air. He was up, a, <laughs> he was up a ladder and he was fiddling with a fuse box. I think the fuse, the fuse had blown and the lights had gone out, so he'd he'd uh, he'd gone out there. But of course, he loved to be naked, you know. So he around the fluff flat. So, Miles said, it's not the sort of thing that you wanted to see first thing in the morning. Was Ginsberg's hairy butt cheeks? Well, that was uh, that was an important reading. Um, that's quite, that was it was quite a rare LP as well. Um, it was issued in uh, an edition of ninety nine copies. Uh, although on the sleeve it says 100 copies, so I've, that's always puzzled me a little bit. Um, apparently you could avoid uh, paying some kind of tax if you didn't press more or didn't sell more than 100, 100 or more copies. A companion LP, Lawrence Ferlinghetti at Better Books, also existed. Um, looks very similar. Both of them have covers drawn by the artist Alan Aldridge. And 
we got this from Miles at the same time. And the Lawrence Furling Getty LP is the rarer of, of the two because 25 of these 99 or 100 copies were sent in the post to America and promptly disappeared, rendering it an even more limited edition. Disappeared or were kind of confiscated for some reason. Lost in the post is my understanding. Yeah, although they did, all these people had run-ins with uh, people Im- implementing censorship uh, at one time or another. Better Books uh, is a story in it itself, really, um, site for the emerging counterculture. I mean, that um, Ginsberg reading was followed just a few weeks later, I believe, by the International Poetry Incarnation at the Royal Albert Hall, which was a much bigger event, of course. And uh, I think that's widely considered the kind of London counterculture coming out into the open for the for the first time quite famous uh, quite a famous event all planned in the in the basement of better books i think it seems quite unbelievable in a way that poetry could be such an important part of a kind of cultural revolution i mean you know <clears throat> that event in itself um you know as you say it kind of seems to kind of kickstart or or, or or was part of the things that kickstarted the countercultural 60s here wasn't it and it's you know royal albert hall june 1965 you know sold out show with all these poets and all these people there it's it's an extraordinary thought isn't it these days when probably for most poets you know if they have a book launch these days it's probably in a tiny bookshop and you know with a you know an audience of about sort of 15 people right is that does an underground in the same sense exist today not really um in music terms I think you could probably say say the same thing as as you just have had said about poetry. It's um, a totally different landscape. I, I think it was. I mean, I'm projecting a little bit because I don't really know, but um, it seems to me that uh, the lines of engagement were more starkly drawn. You you were either a kind of kind of on the progressive side, or you were one of the stiffs in the establishment, stopping everything from happening. And um, I think everything's kind of a lot more atomized now. Um, uh, I don't know when the last when was the last time there was something you could call a, an underground movement. I, I suppose we'd um, we'd be talking about it in a different way. It wouldn't necessarily have a, a kind of literary connection anymore. I don't think. It comes up quite often here, actually, in you know, in programs about the counterculture. You know, where is the counterculture now? Where is the underground? I mean, I'm actually quite optimistic about it. I sort of think that it is there, but the by the virtue of the fact it's underground, it may be happening in a way, a place that we don't know about it, and or in a, in a way that we don't know about. You know, I mean, I often think maybe halfway up a tower block in Peckham or something. You know, there's <clears throat> there's probably something going on. But it's just more that the speed of uptake of countercultural and underground ideas is so fast now that it's difficult to actually notice uh, when it's actually happening. You know, you, we're going to move on to your um, selection five, and you mentioned some. I'd never heard of him actually before, but you can tell us about him. Um, uh, maybe it's Bob Cobbing. Who was he? Bob Cobbing was um, a sound poet. Um, he ran the Writers Forum Press. He was probably the, the UK's most famous exponent of what was kind of certainly um, at least a European phenomenon, uh, sound poetry. Poetry that um, is kind of conceived of to be heard rather than than read 
Um, so some of Bob Cobbings' scores you you couldn't really read because they're kind of some of them are just a mark, well, I'd say just marks. Some of them are kind of marks distorted by a photocopier, for example, um, which he would then interpret. I mean, that's only one side of what he did. Uh, but he came. He worked in better books as well. And uh, this record, actually, now you mention it, this was on our wish list for a long time. Um, was issued uh, by um, Writers Forum. Yeah, this was 1965 as well. So this was a one-sided LP, Bob Cobbing on one side and Ernst Yandel on the other. Side one was this long piece called Sound Poems uh, by Cobbing, recorded at Better Books again. Um, the British Library acquired uh, Bob Cobbing's manuscript archive. And then a couple of years after that, uh, we acquired his tape archive. So we, in addition to this, we have a lot of the small press publications, many issued by Writers Forum that he was involved with. So we're kind of your one-stop shop for, for Bob Cobbing, the British Library. Adventure, aventure, aventureux, adventure, aventure, aventureux, adventurous, à l'aventure. Dear la bonne aventure, aventurier, aventurière, aveugle, aveugle, à l'aveuglette, bombaste, bombaste, bom, bom, bombaste, bombaste, en phase, en, en, en phase, bombaste. En phase, bombast. Bonkers. I mean, um, <laughs> that's in the sort of classic 60s week, I can imagine lots of earnest people sitting around <laughs> staring while this guy's making strange noises, like sort of like Dali, you know, with his Dali Dali-esque stuff. Uh, only, in the, only in those days, right? It's difficult to imagine that these days, right, Steve? Apparently, people it was all right if you laughed. Uh, you know, if that was your reaction, I think that was fine. Um, in the British Library, we used to put out um, literary-themed CDs. Uh, we don't do this anymore. It's kind of yesterday's format, really. But we did put together a, a compilation of drawn from the Bob Cobbing archive, and it received my favourite review of anything we've ever done. Uh, this was Stuart Lee in the Sunday Times, and he wrote. This superb British Library selection from Cobbing's archive of chants, rants and growls, many of them not commercially available before, opens with a 22-minute piece called 26 Sound Poems, which has all the ritualistic gravity of Ginsberg's howl, but is shorn, like everything here, of such cheap tricks as sense and meaning. <laughs> Which is basically what you said. Very good. Well, uh, Steve, we, we're sort of moving to the end. We've got, we've got your last piece uh, coming up, and of course, it's a it's a cracker. Um, but I wanted just before we do to let people know about some more about what actually you do. I've I've sort of been in the sound archive in the basement, and it's quite an extraordinary place. And the thing is, is that obviously you can check out online now or. You know, most nearly all everything's catalogued, isn't it? I'm sure you're sort of taking new stuff in, but you but you can sort of just request uh, that you can go in there, and somebody there will 
take something out of the catalogue and, and let, allow you to hear it. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I just wonder how many people know about that. We do have an online portal, um, sounds.bl.uk, where something like 80,000 sounds are available to listen to freely. Uh, we're updating this resource uh, with a new sounds website, which will probably be launched uh, early next year with many, many more thousands of recordings. Um, but it's quite a uh, it's quite a business to get to that point because um, you have to digitise the material from whatever its original carrier is. Um, and if you're going to put it online, you have to go through uh, proper rights clearance. So we're state subsidised institution we can't just do what we like we have to obey the uh, obey the copyright regulation so that's quite a quite an involved business um but i think it'll be worth it and i think people will be it's an enormously expanded selection that's probably next spring if you want to hear anything in the sound archive um you will have to get yourself a a reader pass and there's instructions on uh, www.bl.uk So we're going to finish with Steve's uh, last selection and it involves Neil Cassidy, Dean Moriarty and On the Road and the driver of the Merry Pranksters bus with his buddy Jack Kerouac. Tell us about it, Steve. Yeah, this is uh, from a tape that was given to us by Carolyn Cassidy and it features both Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy at home. This is a recording they made on uh, an echo tape machine that used paper tape, apparently. Uh, the original paper tape is long gone, so this is um, maybe not even a first-generation copy. Uh, Carolyn Cassidy, um, I think, wrote the first memoir of the leading lights of the Beat Generation. Um, there was an account by a woman. That was her, her book, Heartbeat, in 1976. It's interesting uh, to hear Kerouac on this. It's totally informal, and uh, unlike Allen Ginsberg, he wasn't recorded that much in his lifetime. Uh, he died early, of course. And uh, since then, one or two things have come to light. And uh, this is one of them. Of course, he was a big jazz fan, doing a bit of scat singing at home. stuff that wasn't it actually you could sing yeah <laughs> we never know a jazz though <laughs> steve cleary thanks very much for coming to the bureau of lost culture thank you very much for having me and thank you listener i trust you enjoyed it if you dug that as Kerouac might have said as much as i did you can dig 
uh, all our other semi-buried, semi-unearthed, recollected, collected, rare stories and rare audio from the counterculture, from the other side, from the underground at bureauoflostculture.com and, of course, these days on all your favourite podcast providers. Do leave us a review if you listen to us via Apple. We'd really appreciate that. See you, hear you next time. I'm Stephen Coates. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture.